Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the latest topics that are troubling investors, from how investments can compete with rising cash rates to growing geopolitical fears and uncertainties and how these can affect investment decisions. With Maya Welford, behavioural finance expert, Miles Sherry, wealth manager, and Will Hobbs, chief investment officer. Welcome to another episode of Word on the Street, a special treat for you this week, I hope. We're going to do a whirlwind tour of all that concerns you in investment terms. We've got Miles back again to channel these concerns. So if any are missed, you know who to blame. Miles, welcome back. Jives have started already, I tell you. Yeah, I know. Very early on for that one, Miles. (laughs) I needed to deflect the blame somehow. (laughs) Miles doing it, so doing it for us. Miles, it's been a while. How was your summer? Yeah, really good. Thank you. It's been good. Off to good. Mallorca tonight for a wedding. So, oh, nice. Yeah, nice weekend. Nice weekend. Flashy. Very flashy. Get you. I'm happy we've caught you, Miles, before you've, you're going away. So China, am I too late? Why bother with investment risk when I can get such juicy rates on deposits? US elections and other geopolitical fears. There's a lot there and we're going to try and cover as much as possible. As usual, if you feel like we are missing anything here or there's something you'd like for us to cover, get in touch with me or Will on LinkedIn and we'll see what we can do. So Will, before we get into the major questions of the moment and grill Miles a bit more, is there anything we should add to the list from the week so far in markets? Well, I'm not going to Mallorca for a wedding tonight. That's the first thing I would be saying. I'll be getting stuck in London. But yes, it's been an interesting week, I think. And it's still pretty hard, I think, to mould incoming data points around the world into a kind of coherent narrative. I think the main surprise continues to be that the US and world economy has seemingly digested an awful lot of interest rate rises from the central bank. So, you know, 400 to 500 basis points in the US and Europe, and it's still seemingly, you know, trudging on. And actually, that understates it a bit in the US as it goes, you know, powering on is probably a bit more accurate. The central banks have basically put a brick wall in the path of the economy and it's just kind of crashed through it or so it would mostly appear. Now, the good news is that almost wherever you look, inflation data have been surprising to the downside finally. But the question has remained, you know, where is the recession that the inverted yield curve, the ISM manufacturing surveys, all these dependable augers of doom and much theory and practice of kind of central bank interest rate rising campaigns, the recession that all those things would predict. And so far, no such thing. Just on that, Will, and I have to say, and just to be clear, Meyer, I think it's me probing Will, and I have to say it's always much easier <laughs> being on this side of the table. But anyway, something our clients have been asking us about is, is really exactly that, because as you alluded to, if we go back to the start of the year, I mean, nearly everyone, right, was saying that another recession was almost inevitable in the US. In fairness, I think you and the team weren't quite as convinced on that front. But regardless... I'm sure you can understand, right? There are some clients who are a little bit confused about everything that's been going on. We're at five and a quarter percent in terms of the US central bank rate at the moment. There hasn't really been any material downturn since that hiking cycle began. When was it? In March last year. Every period's, of course, different, but, but how do you kind of explain that? Yes, with great difficulty. And I think you know, you're right. We were a bit more equivocal. We're a bit more equivocal on everything about the future generally. That's humility. That's a, the humility. I think that's the way to, that's the way to pose it. But I think first and foremost, as you rightly say, it's a reminder not to allow strong views to have an influence on your overall investment allocation at the edges. 
you know, that, that that's fine, but not on the overall bit. It's not just different this time, but every single time, as we always say. I think second, you know, we should warn just for caution that it, it could just be delayed. There's plenty of work showing how in the US in particular, there's a very slow, maybe particularly slow transmission of kind of higher policy rates, you know, the interest rates you see the central bankers enact into actual wallets of companies and consumers. And actually, you know, if you look at some sort of statistics in some parts of the US economy, the interest costs are still actually going down in some places. So who knows? But I think there are some plausible arguments about the distorting effect of the pandemic and the policymaker response. So in much of the developed world, there's still a pile of excess savings uh, so-called excess savings, we don't consider them such, but uh, that continue to allow consumers to spend, you know, in excess of their earned income. And that's really softened some of the blows from tighter monetary policy. You've also seen significant, you know, what's called fiscal loosening in the US. So, you know, government largesse from a variety of enacted bills on infrastructure, domestic chip production, and, and, and you know, to the increased what's called FDIC outlays to the depositors in the wake of that banking crisis, you know, the SVB, Silicon Valley Bank uh, crisis and the others in the first half. And that's provided some offset to central bankers kind of hauling in the hauling in the tide and interest rate, so to speak. I think this uh, maybe uh, the final point, it's outside the recession narrative, but there also appears to be a sustained pickup in research and development and intellectual property spend. So there is a sense, actually, that we're at the start of something tangible in terms of an industrial revolution surrounding AI. So that, that's all those things are sort of, you know, mixing around and more besides, yeah, to make it different this time, perhaps. And well, just to go back to, I think, your first point around letting headlines influencing investment plans, this really brings me back to what we spoke about last week. So we discussed the biases in, in quite a lot of depth last week. And if we think about the headlines, and the news, the, the news and the media are really, really bad at kind of perpetuating these psychological and behavioral biases that all of us experience. You know, the news splashed all over the various media outlets today on prospective recessions, wars, other tragedies are mostly irrelevant to the things that are driving people's investments. But because they're really front of mind, they can therefore influence how we're thinking, feeling and making decisions around investments. And don't get me started on how, you know, recommendation algorithms <laughs> used by news apps and social media, they can really reinforce existing views. This might not lead to the best decision making, but anyway. Yeah, no, so you're, you're spot on, Myron. Good reminder. And I think, you know, the pretty mundane, mostly pretty mundane progress of the global economy is indeed what matters. The act of inventing new stuff and getting better at using that new stuff, namely productivity, is mostly, I think, too boring to report on and keep your circulation up. And that's what matters, as we say, you know, I mean, and I think we can't really blame the media in a sense there. You know, their job is to get us to read their stuff and look at their stuff. And yeah, I mean, turning around and sort of reporting on productivity, I yeah, I don't have many friends when I talk about productivity. <laughs> I don't have many friends, full stop. But, you know, I think that's kind of part of the problem, isn't it? Distinguishing between the commercial imperatives of media and what we need to do as investors. It's pretty bleak, isn't it, that bad news is what sells. But, um, yeah. but uh, rightly or wrongly, that's the reality of it. But going back to what you're saying, well, I, I completely get what you're saying. But another recurring theme, really, that clients have been pondering, which, you know, makes sense in a way, is why risk investing what you have when, to Maya's point at the start, cash returns are starting to look a little bit more juicy, particularly if you lock that money up for a certain period of time. Now, some recognise, of course, this might be a short-term concept, who knows, and cash returns will still likely, of course, be below inflation. But you can understand, right, why some are happy to sit on more cash at the moment. But 
I'm going to guess you're going to say that if you're investing for the long term with any excess cash you might be lucky enough to have, that's still going to be the best chance of growing your funds above inflation. Not guaranteed, of course. Well, we could almost have a podcast with you asking yourself questions and you answering the questions. <laughs> I agree. I agree. No, no, and, and true. But but I mean, I would say also, you know, that, that, that what you describe is right for some, you know, maybe cash on account, given the interest rates, you know, we don't want to push too hard and force people into investments who aren't ready or to a greater proportion. You know, it's our job to try and get people as as invested as possible. And, you know, Maya and her team try and define like what's possible, what's sort of emotionally comfortable, what's physically, you know, the right amount to get invested. But like you say, over time, we would expect our collected investment efforts to comfortably beat the return available from cash and, you know, short maturity stuff. But in the short term, it could be a bit more marginal. You know, I concede that. However, you know, remember the story you referred to, it's already reflected in what's called our strategic asset allocations. You've heard a lot about this, I'm sure, you know, over the summer. And this is the process whereby you're evaluating the risk reward on a variety of asset classes, including cash and short maturity bonds, and including how they interact with each other and implementing the optimal mix of all of those things to get the best possible return. So higher interest rates and therefore higher expected returns means that all things being equal, they'll play a bigger role in your you know, multi-asset class funds and portfolios. So you actually see expected returns from a diversified fund or portfolio go up with those interest rates to a degree because those interest rates play a larger role. I'm being reductive as usual, but I think be very, very careful of double counting the efforts of these asset allocation specialists we're very lucky to have here. They really, really know what they're doing. That's what I would say. So kind of relate to this, I was doing a panel recently where someone from the audience, they pointed out that stock markets have recovered pretty sharply in the first half. You know, valuations in some parts now look pretty intimidating. You could even say bubbly if this AI craze doesn't deliver something material. Then if we think about China, if some parts of the media are to be believed, it's having its very own Lehman's moment. The worry from the person in the audience, and probably probably reflective of other people's worries as well, was that they'd missed the boat. Those secure cash rates looked extra attractive relative to a very insecure and expensive looking investment world outside. And it all goes back to emotions. Well, as you've mentioned, our innate need to for seeking comfort in certainty. And this is what we're seeing a lot of people doing. Yeah, it's totally understandable, isn't it? And I think it's always that interesting bias. What's it called where you, you know, view the past with those rose tinted specs? Oh, a function the, of the fact that, uh, yeah, what's the rosy it? retrospection. Yes, I love it. I love it. And, and, and it kind of the idea that, you know, the past always looks relatively uncomplicated to a present and future where all is still possible and hasn't yet collapsed into one strand of events because the past, you just see the events that happened. And I, oh yeah, although, you know, admittedly, the recent past looks a little bit more complicated than normal, but it, you've got to be aware of it. And on China, Robin Sean covered this very well, I thought it was two or three weeks back, wasn't it? But don't you think those Lehman's comparisons are maybe a little bit extreme or could this actually, you know, really be a pretty disruptive event for not just China, but the world economy more broadly? Yeah, I mean... Miles, it's a great question. And you're right, they did cover it. I mean, I, I, forgive me, I, I'm super interested in this subject. And so I've done a lot of re reading and sort of, you know, thought about it, not that I'm a China expert, but it's just something I am, we are all interested in. What China is going through, you can cluster into two sort of broad camps, two broad camps of commentators experts, so on. There's one cluster of explanations which really worries about something called authoritarian expropriation risk. I know, catchy, isn't it? But this is the idea that President Xi's time in office has seen kind of ideology play a much larger role in the economy. 
it's reductive, but you can compare the disappearance from a different disappearance from view of Jack Ma, once very prominent Chinese tech bro, uh, you know, with the preponderance of noisy tech billionaires in the US now. Some of our listeners may long for a world where we hear a bit less from some of these guys. But the significance is what it says about differing incentives in the two economies, US and China. So the incentive to innovate, to have wacky ideas is seen as indistinguishable from free speech, etc., etc. Now, the point here is that basically this is a classic authoritarian trap that history has seen literally over and over again. Ultimately, you run out of road, you need democracy and all that comes with it to break out of the so-called middle income trap. The second batch of arguments is more about sectoral makeup, and it comes to a similar conclusion, but from a different direction. And this is about the fact that at the heart of China's amazing success this last few decades, and remember, in terms of kind of poverty reduction at scale, this is like one of the best tales ever told by humanity in its long history. But at the heart of that is the creation of a private sector property market. And Basically, in the space of a generation, China moved half a billion people from the countryside to multiplying cities. But evidently, you can't do that again. You can only really do it once. And as a result, the China growth model has run out of road and it's created enormous imbalances in the process. And the meltdown of various banking property entities is symptomatic. But... The answer to your question, which I could have just got to at the beginning, is no. Um, <laughs> it's not really. I don't think. I it's didn't a, want to say it. Yeah, yeah sorry. But it's it's it, China's really interesting because loads of you know all, all these kind of Western analysts are looking at it with a particular perspective. But it's 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 really a challenging moment. But it's not Japan in the 1990s. It's not Lehman's. There's never been an economy of China's scale in its position, so beware. And there's another warning, I think, which is, you know, there's all sorts of narrative traps and other tra- you know, other traps to fall into. You know, there's an unease about China's model of governance, which can too easily translate into a search for reasons why it might fail economically. But keep in mind that, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to the 19th century, but, you know, if you're a Brit... In 1870-ish, or maybe a bit before that, you might have made very similar arguments to the ones you're hearing about China, about the emerging US, right before the US overtook Britain as the global hegemon and surged ahead. So the US, or at least was perceived to have an inferior education system, particularly higher education, inferior scientific establishment. It was laboring under crony capitalism, epitomized by these you know, famous guys called the robber barons. It was a bitterly divided population and unequal governed by what was, you know, seems a you know, creaky political system. There are even, you know, loads of accusations of IP theft, intellectual property theft from UK, just as with China. So, you know, it was a mass producing IP nicking laggard until it wasn't. And China, I think for its part now, still has an awful lot going for it alongside fearsome scale of an internal market, even if policymakers have a very difficult few years ahead. I'm sorry that's a long-winded answer, but it's I think it's super interesting. It's a, it's a fascinating story, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's um, amazing. It is a fascinating story. And I tell you what, it's a great advertisement for you, Will. If you ever wanted to do a career or change, and I'm not suggesting you do, because <laughs> that would be a shame, I think I know where you'd be a good fit for. But anyway, Maya referenced valuations looking a little bit lofty. And look, whenever I come on here to reference kind of client talking points, we always cover valuations. And I suppose that says a lot about it in itself. You've called it the cost of the ticket before, haven't you? I quite like that. It's simply the price you pay to to access markets, really. And again, it's been covered a fair bit over recent weeks. But while we have you, any particular further thoughts on how things are looking from that perspective? 
Yeah, Miles, again, I mean, I think you, you answer it perfectly. I mean, there's always toppy bits. There's always cheap bits. You know, UK equities is a good example of the cheap bits. Um, but uh, there always, you know, there, there is always tends to be that mix. I think, you know, there's an interesting piece about the technology of the moment, creating kind of monopolies for these giants that are sometimes hard for the competition authorities to tackle in their current framework. But that's for another day. I think bubble is probably too strong a word for the US, you know, bits. But one of our research providers measures the percentage of what they called young, unprofitable companies, yucks, as a proportion of the overall market as, as a metric to sort of measure froth. And that has been rising a bit of late. However, there are also signs, as I mentioned earlier, that the AI craze is actually turning up in real activity. You know, there's uptrends in IP and R&D. So yes, I mean, there is a bit of froth in some parts of the US, but that doesn't mean we would leave it out of a balanced mix and certainly doesn't mean that it can't rise further. There's real stuff changing on the ground that's really worth taking note of. We do think, obviously, you should be invested globally wherever possible or the same. But yes, I mean, I wouldn't get too carried away with it, even if there are some sort of you know headline valuation multiples that look quite difficult. And to, and to your point earlier, right, there's still things to potentially be excited about over the long term. And I suppose what you alluded to is that that next potential industrial revolution that AI may fuel, who knows? That is exactly, exactly right. And I think every minute, second, hour extra you're invested is time that you're allowing all that amazing invention and innovation to take place and and, and affect your exit price from your investments. Because if you assume that markets are relatively efficient, as we always say, so most of the stuff that we see out there in the papers and you know, in the, in the media, that's already reflected in prices, more or less, not perfectly, but more or less. You don't need to worry about today. What you need to worry about is what the world's going to look like when you get to selling your batch of investments, hopefully in years, even decades time. So you've just, you know, that's the thing to focus on. Yeah. And if we bring this back to thinking about our listeners and our clients, and Miles, I know you have lots of conversations like this. If clients are struggling to pull the trigger, techniques like drip feeding or other tips to get over the line can be really helpful. So Miles, I've done some work this year with our wealth managers on averaging in versus getting fully invested up front. And our material and, and what we concluded from our team is that the best thing to do is just get invested and go with the strategy you feel most comfortable with. It's really bringing it back to that feeling and, and emotions when, when it comes to investing and making those decisions. And Miles, we've discussed this before, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, I think you're the expert here. You, you said it very well, but I think sometimes it comes down to textbook theory, if you like, versus reality. And as you say, I think emotions is the key word. We always say don't try and time the market, but if you're going to feel more comfortable and more likely to stay invested for the long term by drip feeding in over weeks, months, whatever that might be, then then yeah, that's probably the best outcome for you. But just keeping on the time, we are, I've got one final one just to, to cover off. It's not something that's really cropping up now per se, but given news flow, you can see it potentially becoming more and more prevalent over the next few months, and that is geopolitics. I know you're going to say it's an ever-present, and of course it is, but some will argue that this is heightening what happens if, say, Trump got re-elected, what happens if, I don't know, China and Taiwan escalated their, their tit for that. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. I mean, not to, not know, an easy one. Not an easy one. And not to do down on kind of the genuine geopolitical experts. They are fewer than those claiming the title, obviously. But the old adage of don't ask the barber if you need a haircut 
springs to mind. So remember that quite a lot of these commentators are incentivized to get you reading, paying for their services. Most of the time that involves hyping various threats, I sometimes think. Some are real, of course, you know, some are underhyped even. But I think as investors, we need to focus on the underlying trends in, you know, violence, warfare more to a certain extent. So I'd recommend Steven Pinker here or actually something I had recommended by a friend, an old colleague, something called Superabundance. It's a pair of rational optimists within the Cato and Discovery Institutes. Those are well worth a read just to sort of provide that important context. There are many paths ahead for US-China relationships. Many do not lead to war. I do worry, like everyone else, about the ones that do lead to war, but would caution not to overweight them, I think. With regards to US elections, you know, really, who knows? The long path to the elections in the US always starts with the need to gather the party faithful behind one candidate on each side. The party faithful always, or you know, by definition, tend to be contain the less moderate voices. This is particularly, you know, I mean, in the US, this is an unusual run up to an election for sure, for all the reasons you see covered so thoroughly in the media. But but remember, for investors, it's actually a bit simpler to discard. In order to take a particular position related to the election, you'd need to identify a policy that you think will be enacted as a result of a particular candidate being elected. Now, just getting the candidate reliably right, let alone the policy after it's been through the sausage making process would be a feat. So keep your eyes on the horizon well beyond the elections and focus on the medium term prospects for productivity. I know it's boring, but that's that is going to be what drives your investment portfolios. The Industrial Revolution happening in our midst, not the occupant of the White House, whoever or however old they may be. Well, Miles, we've covered a lot today. And I think I speak for the three of us when I say it's a great time to get invested. But, you know, we do need to acknowledge the the negative headlines and the kind of behavioural biases that come up for us. So we'll leave it there and speak soon. Thanks for listening. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.